Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So yeah, you didn't think I was going to miss out on my little phrase, did you? Just because I've got a new intro, still going to get the phrase in, don't worry, it's still there. Let's get cracking. Um, So, today is going to be an episode all about some of the recent events. There's been loads of mad things going on over the last couple of weeks and... uh, yeah, I thought I'd go through it all and give my thoughts on what's been happening. Um, but before we get into any of that, um, just a quick, uh, some updates and some little bits of bits and pieces of information about the podcast and stuff. Um, so, first of all, uh, as you heard on the intro there, I have now started a Patreon. So, obviously, I've got a little new intro there, but at the end of the day, if you don't want to hear it and you listen to all the episodes of the podcast and things... Um, it's around about I tried to make it almost exactly 1 minute and 30 seconds that intro Um, and um, you can just skip it so I listen to a few other absolutely loads of other podcasts and um, there's some of them that have quite long intros and things like that Um, so I've made it 1 minute 30 so that you can just kind of hit your skip button a certain amount of times and you'll be able to skip past that and get straight into the actual episode, which is what I do with a few of the podcasts that I listen to. But I wanted to make sure there is an intro because obviously as the podcast kind of grows and we get new listeners and things like that, some people might not really be aware of like what angle I'm coming from and things like that and obviously want to try and get the, the Patreon information in there as well. So I just made a little intro just to kind of give anyone who's listening for the first time the opportunity to actually understand a bit more about the background of everything and uh, obviously get the Patreon thing um, in there as well. But as I say, if you listen all the time and you don't want to hear that little intro, skip to 1 minute 30 and you're away. So um, obviously, you know, I've never I've never really asked anybody to, I don't do the whole, you know, please like, share and subscribe guys or type of stuff. I just find it a bit, you know, it's not my thing not to knock anybody who does that because it kind of logically makes sense really. But I don't know why, I just, I don't really feel comfortable doing it. So I'm never going to be doing that whole thing. But 
I've been really kind of blown away by how much people do, you know, share the podcast and, you know, try and spread awareness. And I'm really, really thankful for that. And it's different now to when I first started because we've, we've got a little community going, you know, I, I get emails all the time off people who are interested in the topic and some people who've got into the topic from listening to the podcast, which is absolutely amazing. And, you know, people who've been into the, the topic for years who, who just like to listen to my approach and the more the little community we've got going on here grows, you know, the the stronger the whole thing gets and the numbers side of it is is you know i'm not trying to be famous or anything like that but the fact is much as i don't really like thinking about the numbers side of it it does help you know to get like you know better guests more well-known guests and things and i'm sort of coming at, at the the whole area of ufos from outside really of ufo twitter and the ufo community you know i have not really been deeply involved in the community for years you know it's i've been lurking for the last couple of years but only really posting things even for the last you know six months or so really so relatively new to the party and my my twitter account the ufo thinker twitter account actually doesn't really reflect the amount of like listeners that we actually get on the podcast um so i think a lot of my listeners perhaps aren't in the ufo community and people who who are coming at this you know from from the outside of the ufo twitter world and I've actually been told by a couple of uh, people who have approached to be a guest that they don't want to come on the show due to only going on shows with like big reach. But actually, I think, you know, the listener numbers, I don't really talk about because I don't really like pushing that side of it. You know, like, way we did, you know, a thousand listens or whatever. It's not my type of thing. You know, I don't really celebrate milestones like that. Um, But the actual listener numbers are probably a lot higher than some of the you know youtube channels and things that i watch streams on it's actually quite mind-blowing really that that per episode we get a lot of listens a lot of downloads i just don't really shout about it i don't really do the whole thing of like celebrating you know we just reach blah 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 listeners and things it's you know but because i don't shout about that people don't really realize that actually we have got quite a big reach with this podcast now but you know as you can see from what I'm saying there, the numbers kind of do make a bit of a difference. And the more, you know, the more guests we can get on, the more questions we can ask and the more I can get, you know, you guys, the listeners questions in front of some interesting people as well. And um, so I do, I do want to see the podcast grow and see the, you know, the, the audience numbers grow and things like that. But at the same time, I'm trying to strike a balance of not being, you know, I don't want to start doing things that I don't like doing, like banging on about numbers all the time. So yeah the patreon was a way that i thought would be a good way to get some support in without having to kind of um you know go on about that side of things too much people who do want to support the the podcast can can now go on the patreon and and check that out as i mentioned in the intro and if you're not interested in doing that or you're not able to do for any reason the show's always going to be free so you know it's not going to be any different apart from that little one minute 30 intro at the start so 
Um, speaking of guests, by the way, Chris Leto is going to be on the show next week. We've got a, a, an interview actually scheduled in. And um, Chris is, uh, if anybody who's not aware, is a retired fighter pilot. And he's been making video analysis of some recent UFO footage and has had some back and forth with like Mick West and things. You, you may remember a situation where I got involved in this debate with Mick West and Chris Leto was involved and blah, blah, blah. So it'd be interesting to talk to him about that and a few other things. Um, so if anybody's got any listener questions for Chris, really excited to get him on uh, the podcast and anyone wants a question answered, feel free to email them across to me. So that's uh, ufothinker at hotmail.com or ufothinker at protonmail.com if you want the uh, secure email and send them over or send me a DM on Twitter if you're on Twitter and uh, we shall get those questions to Chris. So um, yeah, keep an eye out for that one. So... I thought um, we'd go into some recent events then. Now we've got all that intro side of things there out of the way. So, first of all then, um, there's been a few little developments that I thought we'd go into for today. So, Lou Elizondo, um, who I've been talking about a lot on the podcast recently, um, but Lou seems to have been kind of everywhere you look. You know, there's, always, there's a new interview with him and things like that, and uh, all kinds of various things that he's been up to, which is great to see. So, Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon have now been ad, uh, announced as advisors to the Galileo Project. Uh, I think Research Affiliates is actually the official title that they, they hold now within the project. So, just to quote from the Galileo Project website for a second, quote, and this was actually on uh, October the 30th, uh, 2021 that this was uh, announced quote today the galileo project lead professor avi Loeb announced the additions of mr luis elizondo and mr christopher mellon to the project team as research affiliates knowing their depth of experience investigating the subject of unidentified aerial phenomena and their shared interest in open and transparent study of the phenomena Loeb welcomed them as the latest members of a diverse and growing Galileo Project team. The Galileo Project will greatly benefit from the broad knowledge base and wisdom of Elizondo and Mellon, said Professor Loeb. We all share the goal of identifying the nature of UAP and anomalous interstellar objects like Oumuamua. As refer research affiliates... Elizondo and Mellon intend to support the Galileo Project's mission through the selection of sites where the UAP scope systems will be located and in assessing the societal implications of the data if any extraterrestrial technological signatures or artifacts are discovered. Unquote. Now, I know that was a bit of a long quote, but I wanted to get all of that in because, I mean, just that just blew me away, really, to be honest with you. Think about what that's actually saying. So, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon, two of the kind of real figureheads of the disclosure movement over the last few years, you know, have now joined up with the Galileo Project, which I've talked about on the podcast a lot recently, the Galileo Project. Those two guys are now research affiliates for that project, and they'll actually be helping to choose the location of where the sensor equipment's going to be. I mean, that is just so big of a deal. I, I really find that really, really exciting. And the Galileo Project is, 
you know, the thing is, there's been a lot of talk recently about, you know, Ralph Blumenthal did an article about um, the human effects of, you know, abductions and experiences and things. And um, the Skinwalker Ranch is, you know, very much like people's eyewitness testimonies of seeing very strange things at the ranch and so on. And the work of ORSAP, you know, very much encompassed kind of like the public and people's accounts. All of that is really fascinating. It's been an area to look into. Um, you know that that's kind of opened up a lot more now we've got this book and more details about orsap and things but this with the galileo project is very different to all of that because it's sensor driven research you know this is you know you're actually pointing instruments of you know data capture at the sky and and trying to find actual you know proof data driven research you know and and it's ran by a highly respected academic it's got millions of, in funding which is probably going to grow as the awareness of the project grows and we've got teams of well a team of experts from all around the world i mean i just can't overstate you know how important this project is i mean i think anyway you know it, it's also a civilian project so the data that's captured will hopefully anyway be freely available to the public i'm pretty sure that's the goal that they've got in mind so very different to something like the the UAP task force where only some of the information might get released to the public a lot of it's going to be classified you know this is a civilian project so this is basically a project that there's going to be no controls like the government aren't going to just you know sweep all the data under the rug and you know whatever and just release the bits that they want the public to know about this is basically the public's investigation and I'm really excited about it and now you've got you know, Chris Mellon and um, Lou Elizondo involved, people who've actually been on the inside, actually helping to kind of push it into the right areas. Just think it's such a big deal. And, um, you know, I find it very interesting as well. Another thing that was mentioned in that quote that I read out there, um, the recent conversations have kind of shifted to the implications of what could happen to the human's worldview in light of the discovery of extraterrestrial life, which I found really interesting. I'll just quickly go back to that quote. Um, it says, blah, blah, blah. As research affiliates, Elizondo and Mellon intend to support the Galileo Project's mission through the selection of sites, blah, blah, blah. And in assessing the societal implications of the data, if any extraterrestrial technological signers, signatures or artifacts are discovered. So that's a huge deal as well because part of their role in this organization is to you know how the findings if if they do indeed find you know strong evidence of of vehicles flying around and they get good quality footage and sensor data about those vehicles you know it's it's about assessing how that's going to impact society and, and what that's going to do to actually change the way that we live our lives on this on this planet in in this reality that we inhabit and we've also heard very similar things actually being discussed recently and you know there's been quite a number of people talking about actually thinking about how the you know the, the the reality of finding extraterrestrial life you know other life other than humans other intelligent life out there in the universe how that would affect our society and how we live our lives and um, there was actually a, a a conference recently where um, the head of NASA, um, Bill Nelson, actually went to um, 
it was like a, a conference about um, how what the religious implications are for the the existence of extraterrestrial life. And when you bear in mind that Bill Nelson's been briefed, you know, the, he, he's actually received briefings about the, the classified parts of the, the UAP task force report and things like that. It's just interesting that that, that particular area of conversation about how it's going to affect society you know from a religious point of view and now we've got Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon talking about you know they're actually advising the Galileo project about the societal implications and you know that's that's a very important thing that I've not heard many people mentioning it but the conversation has definitely shifted towards that like how are we actually going to react to this if if and when we find it and you know, the thing is, even if you're like a diehard debunker or sceptic and you find nothing compelling about all the footage and all of the thousands and thousands of, you know, witness accounts and stuff like that, even then, even if you're Mick West, yeah, surely that's still a question that we should be asking because eventually, even if it's not in the next few years, the next 10 years, the next 100 years, even if it's in 200 years, surely we still need to ask that question of like what's going to happen to our our societies and the world we live in when if and when we find that there is clear evidence that you know we're not alone you know it, it surely is a question even if you don't believe like Mick, we Mick West doesn't that there's anything compelling about any of the footage or the Nimitz account or any of these other accounts and you know UFOs interfering with nuclear weapons all of that you don't believe it you think it's all nonsense surely it's still worth asking that question it's like one thing that we should have learned from covid is you can't wait for something to happen before you try and figure out the implications of what it means for society and how to deal with it you know we would have been able to handle covid a lot better if we'd have asked that question in advance you know what if one of these diseases like swine flu bird flu ebola all these crisis diseases we've had over the last you know a couple of decades what if one of them actually picks up and takes off then what are we going to do but it was you know really quite a lack of that question being asked and then it was too late the disease actually started spreading all over the gaff you know and at the end of the day the reaction was was pretty terrible from a lot of countries you know they, they dropped the ball they didn't get on it quick enough and obviously we all know what happened covid just spread all over the world and ran riot and every pretty much every country's economy got hit really hard by it and so on and that that's quite a good example of what happens if you don't ask the question and figure out what the implications are for society and, and the world we live in and so on and then it's it, something happens and it's too late we don't want to make that mistake with extraterrestrial life because again if you look at the probabilities involved you know how many like hundreds of billions of galaxies and each galaxy is just you know it's hard to imagine how vast one galaxy is and there's hundreds of billions of them it stands to reason that eventually you know we're going to have to accept that we're not alone and we're probably better off asking questions asking the tough questions about that now before we actually just it's just you know thrust upon us you know so and, and just to think about the implications for a minute of you know what it would actually be like if we are confronted with that reality that we're not alone you know the the uh, psychiatrist john mack used the term ontological shock to describe the the shattering of your existing worldview upon realizing that we're not alone and 
what if there actually are visitors from somewhere and they are, you know, extraterrestrial uh, in origin, you know, they come here in nuts and bolts crafts, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, what if it's more complicated than that? You know, I've been thinking about, um, you know, the, the possibility of um, a cycle of, of rise and fall of civilizations. You know, over the years, there's a lot of a lot of things that sort of point towards that as, as, as having took place in the past. I mean, we all know what happened to the dinosaurs. You know, the Earth was hit by a massive comet and this race of giant lizards that lived there on this planet you know was wiped out by a, a massive rock that hit the place and, and completely changed the climate and so on and you know what if the um what if that kind of thing's happened more than once we pretty much know that it has because there's massive craters all over our planet that we live on and what if the the somber comments you know from Lou Elizondo about you know what what we would uh, how we would react to things what if we would react to it in quite a somber way what if the reason for that is that we become aware that there's this cycle of, of rise and falls of civilizations that definitely make us a bit somber. It's inevitable that at some point the, the big reset button is going to be pressed once again. You know, maybe the unbelievable megaliths in ancient Egypt and around the world are in fact evidence of a former very advanced civilization. You know, could it be that that former civilization had access to some areas of consciousness or some communication with with others you know that we haven't tapped into yet which allowed them to be able to make the technological marvels with unbelievable precision you know all of those thousands of years ago that we struggle to rival today you know even with all this technology that we've got now we struggle to rival some of those constructions you know and, and when that's now if you think 100 200 years ago there's no way we could have made them how on earth did they make them all those thousands of years ago then could it be that they had some kind of you know some kind of consciousness based technology that allowed them to create those you know i know it sounds bizarre but the CIA looked into remote viewing for nearly two decades of well-funded research, you know, with some very compelling results, apparently. You know, there were experiments done where people have been shown stimuli and it's been proven that the the brain reacts to something that appears on the screen before it actually appears on the screen. So the brain can almost predict what's going to happen in the future or actually know what is going to happen in the future you know milliseconds or you know some cases even seconds before it actually happens there's a lot of research being done recently on you know on that side of consciousness that exists outside of the body and and if we know that all of that stuff happens and we know that like like I say, when I was talking before about dinosaurs, there was a race of giant lizards that ruled the planet. I mean, that's pretty weird, isn't it, if you think about it? Like, you kind of have to open your mind that weird things actually exist and have existed, you know, on this planet. And if that's the case, or that kind of thing is the case, perhaps there were previous very advanced civilizations on this planet that have found out a lot more about this kind of thing than, than we have. And we're about to stumble across that, you know, and also on the other side of it, perhaps just, the, and this is a conversation I've heard a lot of people talking about recently, perhaps the actual nature of our reality is way more bizarre than we actually understand. Or oh, that, that I just mentioned about consciousness and we don't really understand any of this stuff 
you know, what is consciousness? How How is it possible that you have an existence based on this kind of weird fleshy body that you live in? You know, there's got to be something outside of that that consciousness originates from. And it, what happens if we find out that the reality that we inhabit, the things that we perceive day to day, there's a lot more going on than just that. And perhaps, you know, that's where the phenomenon originates from. And, um, you know, the, the impact of things like that on society would be absolutely huge. But anyway, moving on from that, let's get into the next uh, area, which has been a big talking point this week, which is very tricky one to kind of uh, to touch on this, but I'm going to try and dive in and get through it as best I can. So John Greenwald from The Black Vault and Eric Davis have had a bit of a bust up. So it's quite a controversial one. I, I can say I don't really know what to make of this scenario because it's it's very complex. But essentially, a little bit of background for anybody who's not aware. Eric Davis is an astrophysicist who's spoken of very highly by Lou Elizondo and many others. Um, shortly after he got his, his uh, PhD in astrophysics, uh, ast astrophysics um, he went to work for um, NIDS, uh, basically lent his expertise to um, the National Institute for Discovery Science, which was founded by Robert Bigelow, who's um, an aerospace entrepreneur, billionaire, and very interested in what I guess you could call fringe science areas. And um, Bigelow basically, you know, had this mission to look into things to do with, you know, aerial, unidentified aerial phenomena, animal mutilations and other kind of strange things, which essentially were um, the, the things that ORSAP uh, basically ended up looking into. Um, ORSAP basically contracted out a lot of their work to BASS which is Bigelow's um, organisation set up to basically carry out the work required by ORSAP, which a lot of it took place on Skinwalker Ranch. And a lot of that, the findings and a lot of the work they did have been documented by the recent book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, which I've been talking about on the podcast. And after that, there was also ATIP, which Lou Elizondo was the manager of, the director of, and uh, Eric Davis was an advisor for ATIP. And Eric Davis actually claims that he's still an advisor for the continued version of ATIP, which is now under a different name, etc. And essentially, he's one of the go-to guys for top-level scientific research into topics having to do with UFOs and strange phenomena. And he's been at the centre of that for a long, long time now. And John Greenwald is the other person sort of involved in the controversy here and he's, he's known as the the fire king um, he, he's a relentless um you know in terms of pursuing uh, freedom of information access documents and he also goes into some very detailed and um you know some somewhat skeptical analysis really is what john greenwald does um you know he touches on some areas that a lot of people are, are unwilling to question and deep dives in i mean i've got a lot of respect for john greenwald and his approach i think he's um he's not afraid to question what he sees taking place in the ufo world and where a lot of people are kind of quite you know, they toe the line and go along with the, the narrative that's being discussed. And they, John Greenwald doesn't really seem to care about that. And he just he says what he thinks. And I appreciate that, you know. And he does 
his analysis is based on real documents and actual facts and things and he, he tends to shy away from the anonymous source area of, of, of uh, you know getting information and John Greenwald basically recently released a video which I definitely recommend you watch go on, on YouTube and find the Black Vault uh, YouTube channel if you've not seen it already he does podcasts and he does videos about analysis of documents and various things within the ufo topic um and this particular video was highlighting some discrepancies and confusion surrounding atip and orsap and it kind of brings into question some of the statements that eric davis has said as well as the credibility of the man himself essentially um, and he's done that in previous videos as well and what happened essentially was that eric davis took offense and dropped kind of an expletive filled rant on a facebook group insulting john greenwald and calling him names etc and i'm not going to repeat the phrases um but you know it wasn't very pleasant stuff that he said and john greenwald um as far as i'm aware john greenwald didn't actually directly call eric davis a liar um, but that's basically what Eric Davis took from his, his videos. Whether or not Eric Davis has seen the videos or whether he's just heard from somebody else, difficult to say. But, you know, I, I kind of struggle with it, really, with this. Because at the end of the day, I really respect both of those two guys, you know. And, and what it kind of highlights is that, really, people are just people. You know, no one's perfect, I would kind of rather that this whole thing hadn't happened, you know, but it but it did. Does it take away either of the credibility? You know, no, I don't think it does. But sometimes, you know, any any anyone doesn't matter if you're a Joe Bloggs who you know works you know down the road or whatever, or if you're a you know a highly credentialed astrophysicist, you know, or you're a highly credentialed UFO researcher. It doesn't really matter. Anyone can fall into the trap of getting angry and resorting to personal insults etc and it doesn't really take away from your work as an individual but it should just remind us i guess that even though we do put people on a pedestal especially in this topic you know nobody is above being a human human being we're all we've all got our faults you know and um it's just it's just worth bearing that in mind and and it's also a Something recently that I've I've seen is uh, Joel Mergier, uh, who's a you know very very uh, thorough researcher. He does a lot of transcriptions. Again, worth uh, checking him out. He's, he does fantastic work in the UFO topic. Um, I'm a big fan of of Joe as well. And um, unfortunately, Joe and John Greenwald also had a bit of a a bust up as well. And it's a real shame that they couldn't keep it civil because I was actually really enjoying the back and forth that they were having on, particularly on the uh, Wilson Davis notes. So it's kind of like two very, very highly informed people presenting different viewpoints about the, you know, how legit the Wilson Davis notes are and you know the various different nuances and subtle details about the notes and things um but unfortunately it sort of descended into bicker bickering and just arguing and John Greenwald eventually uh, blocked Joe Merger and that was the end of it but really we all lose out there because the back and forths can't take place anymore now you know John Greenwald's blocked Joe Merger and that's the end of that and I think these back and forths it's tough, isn't it, though? Because if you totally disagree with somebody, it's easy to get into just the slanging matches. And, you know, you guys probably, anybody who's, who follows me on Twitter, you'll know that I really try not to do that. I've 
been debating with people quite regularly on Twitter, but I really I've kind of set out a rule of just don't ever insult somebody because that you know when you go down that path, it just because you get heated, everyone gets annoyed, you start saying stuff you don't even really mean, and and then before you know it, you end up blocking each other, you know. Um, so I've re- that's the reason essentially that when I interact with people on Twitter, which I often do, you know, I put a tweet out and you, you get a lot of um, you know sort of skeptical debunker types, you know, jump in your comments and you end up sort of debating with people and you can ignore them, you can block them and things, but I'd rather just have the conversation because my thing is, you know, if I've arrived at a conclusion with a certain topic, like for example, the Nimitz case was a recent one that I debated with somebody again. And the thing is, if I've arrived at a viewpoint about the Nimitz case and somebody else comes in and says, you know what, this is what I think about the Nimitz case, I find that really interesting because you can listen to them, especially if they totally disagree with you. You can go, oh, okay, right, let me consider what you're saying about the Nimitz case. See if my actual, you know, conclusion that I've reached holds water when presented with your argument. And if it does, at the end of it, you go, right, right, you've actually just confirmed for me that what I already thought was you know, is is right and I'll continue to hold that viewpoint. Or if they come up with some interesting information that you didn't know about, you can adjust your viewpoint accordingly. Um you know, but I am quite a patient person and not everybody's that patient and that's fair enough. Um, and on the other hand, there's some other people that I follow on Twitter, I really, you know, appreciate their viewpoints who take a totally different tactic to me and you know jump in and, and really slate people which fair enough you know if that's your viewpoint if that's the way that you want to go about it but as i say it just seems a shame that especially when you've got people at that level you know joe and john you know very very um you know well informed on the topic and so on it's just a shame that, that it did descend to that because i was actually quite enjoying seeing those back and forths because what we all should want at the end of it all is is the truth of the matter um, and you get to that by challenging ideas. You know, that's basically how debate is supposed to work. And I think a lot of people get mixed up with debate, you know, between a debate, which is what I was just discussing earlier, and like an argument, you know, which is a different thing. You know, when you actually, you know, have a, you know, a, a back and forth that's constructive with basically both of you assuming that what you're actually trying to do here is get to the truth, that's great. But when it's a case of just seeing who can say the the harshest thing to the other person to insult them, it's not really constructive. So that kind of leads me on quite nicely to something that we'll probably finish up on, which goes back to the Wilson Davis uh, notes again. Obviously, Eric Davis is the Davis in Wilson Davis notes. And I've been thinking about this and, and talking to a few people about this on Twitter recently as well. And I wanted to just go into it to kind of get um, my viewpoints straight in my own head, really, and to sort of put it across, throw it out to you guys and see if anybody's got some thoughts on it. So essentially, I've kind of created a bit of a, not, not, not really a theory, but just where I'm up to at the moment with the Wilson Davis notes and the crash retrievals that are talked about within the notes and um, we've just finished crash retrieval week last week which was everybody was talking about you know hashtag crash retrieval week and going into that area and something that I've been very interested in recently over the last couple of months I've done these crash retrieval um, 
episodes on the podcast which you can go back and listen to if you didn't catch them it's like a four-part series about various different crash retrievals and digging into the specifics of the cases and i actually talked quite um in quite a lot of detail about the wilson davis notes there as well but basically just for a quick um summary of what they are the, the wilson davis notes i think at this point I, i'm kind of at, at the point of concluding that they are essentially legit and they're basically either based on a recording or from the exceptional memory of Eric Davis. And they are Eric Davis's notes um, of a conversation which took place between Eric Davis and Admiral Wilson. You know, that's the, the standard explanation of what the notes are. Um, it's not exactly clear whether or not Eric Davis just remembered the conversation afterwards and then wrote down all the main points. He's, he's a, a brilliant mind, you know, an astrophysicist, highly respected one. You, you would sort of think that it might be realistic that he could remember a lot of details from a, say, you know, half-hour conversation or however long the conversation was. I forget the exact time. I think it's contained within the notes, but it's something like half an hour to an hour. You could probably remember if you were really switched on that day, If you're a, especially if you're a brilliant mind, you know, you could probably remember a lot of what was said and write it down. Or it could be the case that there was some kind of recording device or another person present in the car who actually took um, some some notes and then Eric Davis rewrote the notes from his own perspective or something. It's not exactly clear uh, as far as I'm aware. But again, if, if I'm saying anything here that other people, you know, you guys listening have any clarity on, then feel free to get in touch and let me know because obviously I want to get to the truth of it. But yeah, without digging too deep... Um, it's kind of like not surprising that, that um, Admiral Wilson claims that the whole thing is false because he says that he would do that in the notes. He says, if questioned, if any of this comes out, I'll claim no knowledge of it and say that it's all nonsense. So it doesn't really surprise you that Wilson has said that it's all nonsense. Now, Eric Davis hasn't commented. He refuses to comment. You know, despite regularly commenting on other issues and calling them out for being total nonsense and things, you know, he's a very outspoken individual. You know, the way that he talks about it sort of suggests to me that the notes are legit. You know, I also get a gut feeling just his reactions to it. And when you look at the bigger picture of the way other people answer questions on the documents, you know, it doesn't really make sense to me that they would be fake based on, you know, the way people react to being questioned about it. And also, depending on how much stock you put into off-record sources, there's a large number of highly credible researchers who say that the notes have been confirmed to them off-record by people who are in a position to know. And I could list all of the people, but it's basically, you know, a, a large number of highly credible people have said that. Now, it's off-record sources that. How much faith you want to put into that is up to you, but it's still something that's worth considering. So having said all of that then, during the actual conversation that took place that the Wilson Davis notes are based on, Wilson and Davis basically talk about Wilson's digging into the crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs after Wilson's frustration, after not being able to access the fullness of the information um, on that area, despite him holding a very high-ranking position. Um, so Wilson obviously denies the whole thing now as i mentioned earlier and davis won't comment despite being 
like I said, very highly outspoken on, on other topics that he considers to be nonsense. You know, he's commented on the Anjali thing recently and said it was completely nonsense and I think, you know, it's quite insulting about Anjali. Uh, he, he's also commented on uh, there's a guy that's doing the rounds at the moment, supposedly made some kind of binoculars called the, you know, alien hunting binoculars. Eric Davis has said that that's complete nonsense as well. Um and as we know, with John Greenwald, he wasn't exactly one to hold his tongue in that situation, was he? So, you know, Eric Davis is clearly a guy who isn't worried about speaking up with his uh, with his you know opinions on things if he considers it to be complete nonsense. But he just refuses flat out to comment on the Wilson Davis notes. Definitely something to that. But could could it be that Eric Davis doesn't actually know the full extent of what is held in terms of materials craft debris you know do it's hard to tell isn't it like there's some people who claim that eric davis knows the whole lot you know but we don't know that's my point here is that it's pretty clear that eric davis knows a lot more than most but do we know what he has actually had access to no we don't there's nothing in the Wilson Davis notes that I can see. You know, again, anybody knows otherwise, let me know, you know, what, what your thoughts are on this. But there's nothing in there that suggests that, you know, he knows that Eric Davis knows everything about what's out there. You know, it suggests that, you know, he's been looking into this topic for a long time, even since way back then when the notes were done, you know, and he may have had progress since then. But we don't know the extent of what he actually knows. And, and even then, we don't know really 100% that the notes are legit. So, Joe Merger has actually stated, again, Joe, I was talking about the UFO Joe on Twitter, definitely worth um, a follow if you're not already familiar with his work. Um, Joe Merger suggested that um, an anonymous source told him that Eric Davis handled the crash retrieval portfolio. So that's a direct quote. Quote, handled the the crash retrieval portfolio, unquote. Whatever that means. So I reached out to Joe, um, but unfortunately didn't get actually a response back at the time of recording it. I sent, it, I sent Joe a DM um, asking, essentially what I asked him was, um, could you provide any clarity on whether Eric Davis was in charge of a portfolio on crash retrievals, perhaps as part of an organization like RSAP or ATIP, or whether Eric Davis was in charge of, you know, a portfolio of actual materials and was in charge of managing the research into reverse engineering efforts, etc. And at the end of the day, I think those are legitimate questions because it's a vague statement. You know, Eric Davis handled the crash retrieval portfolio. That could mean quite a lot of things. And it would make a massive difference to actually find out a little bit of clarity even there. We don't know who Joe's anonymous source actually is at the end of the day. It could be Eric Davis himself for all we know, because we know that Eric Davis and Joe have a friendship and they've exchanged messages in the past and Joe has actually put out screenshots of his conversations with him. So it may be that Joe doesn't want to go into any detail specifically because it's Eric Davis who's told him this. I guess it's quite unlikely, but that, that could be a possibility. But the thing is, that the fact that Eric Davis handled the crash retrieval portfolio, it's a very vague statement indeed. You know, add that to the fact that it's an anonymous source. And what can we really do with that information? You know, as I say, it could be that 
as part of the efforts of RSAP or ATIP, one of the things that they did was put together a portfolio of information relating to crash retrievals. Now, if Eric Davis was the man who handled that particular portfolio, that's not really particularly shocking. You know, it's not really a mind blower because, you know, or is it? Depends what's contained as part of the portfolio, doesn't it? And the extent of what's actually the documentation and the facts and figures that are actually in that portfolio, you know, or, you know, if he was actually in charge of some kind of portfolio of materials or craft or whatever, and he was the one who, you know, would delegate responsibility for certain aspects of the reverse engineering efforts, that's a much more significant thing. But, you know, the two kind of big questions I have about Eric Davis and his work and so on are... I just want to, you know, before I get into that, I'm not, I'm not questioning the credibility of Eric Davis. By the way, I don't think there's much there to to worry about. It's quite clear that he's an extremely intelligent person. You know, he's been at the heart of these efforts for a long time, and he definitely knows more than most. Um, but the the first question that I have is, despite knowing more than most, was Eric Davis frustrated by still being? unable to get at certain you know unacknowledged special access programs perhaps similar to what admiral wilson was you know when the supposed meeting took place wilson was frustrated at not being able to access certain areas now we don't really know much about what extent eric davis actually knew and had 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 access to even at the time of the wilson davis notes that being 20 years ago, you would expect that by now he probably knows a lot more than he did then, um, you know. But to what actual extent? As the notes themselves actually say, no congressional staff or even presidents are on the small list of people who are in the know, you know. And it's it said that the people who are in the know are scientists and engineers, which would make sense as they're the ones who may be able to actually shed some light on what's going on. Like if there's a reverse engineering take, uh, project taking place, it's not going to be congressional staff and people like that that are going to be the ones read into that. You know, what would a congressman really do with that information? You can't really do a great deal, can you? You know, what would Admiral Wilson really do with that information apart from satisfy his curiosity? You know. It could be that actually it's logical that these people aren't read into it, you know. So scientists and engineers would be the ones to actually be brought into these things and and to show at least some of what's going on there, you know. Which would kind of stand to reason that maybe maybe Eric Davis has seen, you know, things in that area. But are the layers to it? Perhaps Eric Davis handled a crash ret- crash retrieval portfolio, you know quote unquote but only the top layers of it you know and perhaps he didn't himself manage to get into the deepest buried areas you know the extent that eric davis has actually been read into is unknown and all we really got to go off is anonymous sources and the the little breadcrumbs that have been dropped now the fact is that if you listen to, like I said, Lou Elizondo, all of these people, you know, the very, very credible people that are at the, the, you know, the, the, the very sort of front line of, of pushing for UFO disclosure, they all vouch for Eric Davis, and Eric Davis has definitely been at the forefront of this this area for a long time, but 
what we don't know is the actual extent that he has been able to find out and that's an area that I'm going to keep trying to go back over Eric Davis interviews and listen to them and try and really get to the bottom of what breadcrumbs he's dropped you know it's it's one of those things for me I'm, I'm finding that actually the more I learn about this topic and the more deeply I dig into certain areas you can go back to old interviews that you've seen a long time ago and pick up on new things so that's the current mission basically there's not that many Eric Davis interviews so I'm kind of re-listening to them all to see if I can pick up on any things that I might have missed on the first time around so then the second big question that I've got is what was revealed during Eric Davis's briefings to Congress? So at this point, we pretty much know for sure that the briefings that Eric Davis has talked about himself and that were mentioned in the New York Times article and so on, briefings, like plural, more than one briefing, you know, definitely took place. So we can say that as an almost almost as a fact by this point. We've heard from various very credible sources, people who actually attended the briefings, that the briefings took place. So I think anybody who's questioning whether or not the briefings took place have, have missed something. Um, they did take place, in my opinion. Um, in particular, Chris Mellon said on a CNN interview that he knows Eric Davis very well, had, attending, had attended his briefings on the Hill and, quote, understand understands davis's arguments unquote and he also mentions that eric davis provided some leads to follow to prove it in those briefings now those are words directly out of the mouth of chris mellon chris mellon's one of the people that when he talks you can you can take seriously what he's saying this isn't some kind of you know guy who just makes stuff up you've got a very strong track record never really put a foot wrong and you know, he's confirming there that he attended these briefings. But if you dig into the way that he's actually saying that, it kind of seems quite clear to me there that Eric Davis didn't actually provide factual proof of the existence of held materials or craft, etc. You know, but rather Chris Mellon sort of suggests that, you know, that his word in there, it kind of suggests that Eric Davis put forward an argument that this stuff exists. You know, Chris Mellon says, I'm familiar with his arguments, or I understand Davis's arguments. Now, understanding his arguments is a bit of a different thing to being presented with something factual, because that's not understanding arguments anymore, is it? If somebody's putting forward an argument, that's almost like putting forward a theory. You're not saying, look, here's the hard and fast evidence. There's no denying that this is a thing. Now what are we going to do about it? it? Sounds like Eric Davis has put forward an argument that these things are in existence and that we need to go after them and, and dig for them. Now, you know, if that is the case, it could be that he's just hinting and not giving away the full extent of what he knows because he's not actually able to speak to congressional uh, committees about the full extent of what he knows. So just the fact that Eric Davis has put forward an argument there doesn't in itself confirm that Eric Davis doesn't know any more than that because he may do, but he may be bound to not talk to anybody, whether it's a, an interviewer, whether it's the press, whether it's uh, congressional committees. Maybe he's not allowed to give away the full extent of what he knows, but just like Lou Elizondo does, he is able to kind of skirt around that. And perhaps what he was actually doing there is 
you know, giving some breadcrumbs to people within Congress to say, look, we need to go after the really deeply buried stuff that I've not even been able to access, you know? It kind of seems unlikely to me that he'd be briefing Congress if he's the man in charge of the unacknowledged special access programs which are holding the debris or craft, you know, in conjunction with private aerospace contractors and things as well, of course, like which is most likely Lockheed Martin. If Eric Davis had actually been the man to handle that portfolio of, of actual debris and, and, you know, was the guy who was coordinating all of that with these private contractors, seems a bit unlikely that he'd be then going to Congress to tell them about it, to say, look, these are the areas you need to be looking into. So it kind of, it seems to me there that perhaps there has been some areas that Eric Davis has wanted to get into and not been able to get into for some reason. And, you know, I'd suggest that, like I said, Eric Davis has, has seen more than most. There's sort of no question about that. But perhaps even he has been frustrated to not be able to access the most compelling stuff as it's contained in a, a rogue, you know, unacknowledged special access program which contracts out its reverse engineering work to a private contractor, which is, like I say, probably Lockheed Martin from what, what we've been able to, to figure out. And the fact is, people talk about plausible deniability, but what that actually means is if you have got debris and you're holding it within the government, you're kind of liable certain things like freedom of information and so on. You know, when all, when all of those laws came into place, you know, they would have had to then remove those uh, pieces of debris or full craft or biological material or whatever it is that have been strongly hinted that that are in existence, if you wanted to be able to deny the existence of those things, you would have to remove them from the possession of any government departments. So there's different ways you can do that. There's your department then goes completely off the books, unacknowledged special access programs, which officially don't even exist, which is very questionable in terms of whether it's even legal, but if that was authorised at some point by the highest possible authorities, then perhaps it still exists in that ongoing um, way that it, that it started off, where it's just completely unacknowledged and there is no oversight over that particular um, programme because it's, it exists outside of the legal framework. And also, as, a, as, a, you know, as, as an extra backup, the actual debris or craft or biological materials, whatever it is, is now actually being held outside of the government as well by an organisation which has been contracted to actually reverse engineer that stuff or just to store it or whatever it may be. Now, we know that that kind of thing happens because obviously that's what happened with ORSAP. You know, the government actually um, put money into an outside-of-government contractor in order to actually get them to do this work on behalf of the government so that, that those kind of things happen it's commonplace so it wouldn't be that difficult to imagine that a, a program may have had to subvert the usual kind of legal proceedings in order to stay out of um, the spotlight and keep this thing hidden in, in a national security interest perhaps you know it's so above top secret that they can't even risk any any slight things coming out so it's been driven underground essentially and and on top of that they've then contracted a lot of the work out to, to private aerospace contractors and 
if that is the case, it might be that Eric Davis has, like I said, seen more than most, but even he has not been able to get to the bottom of it. And what he's actually doing there is he's taking this to, to Congress and saying, look, this is what I've discovered. This is what I've found out. This is what I can't get access to. This is where you need to be looking. Now go for it. And who knows what efforts are currently taking place off the back of Eric Davis's briefings, you know, who knows like who was in that room and who got inspired by what Eric Davis had said and what Eric Davis had put forward, you know, they might have taken that and ran with it and have, have got ongoing efforts to actually get to the bottom of, of what's actually happening there. It's it's a very um it's a very difficult area to actually get to any any fact on, but pretty fascinating nonetheless. So I think that rounds it up for today then. As you can see, um, there's been a lot of drama going on in the world of uh, of UFO Twitter. Um, but also, there's been a few other nice things going on as well. So um, UAP Media uh, UK, which is a fantastic organisation of some of the best um, voices in the UK um, talking about the UAP UFO topic, uh, such as uh, Andy from That UFO Podcast, Graham Rendell, uh, Vinny from the Disclosure Team, um, you know uh, Dave from Shadows Magazine, Shadows of Your Mind Magazine. Um, these guys have all been down to London to to catch up and uh, actually managed to meet Luella Zondo um, while while they were there. Obviously, um, you know that must have been amazing. It's just so great to see Andy in particular, who's been a big friend to 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 me really. You know, to to what I do, big very supportive of me starting this podcast and was uh, the, actually the first ever guest that I had on the show was Andy, um, top guy. And, you know, I'm sure you guys who are listening will, will know uh, all about Andy. Just a really great guy and, and a fantastic show that he runs. And um, to see him, um, you know, taking pictures with Lou Elizondo was just so nice to see. And also it just so happened that Ryan Sprague, another top guy, absolute diamond geezer from uh, Somewhere in the Skies podcast, was also in the UK, had just proposed to his uh, to his now fiancé, I guess, uh, and uh, they got engaged to be married. So big congratulations to Ryan Sprague. Um, and he also managed to meet up with Lou Elizondo. So yeah, a bit of a crazy time, really, a lot going on. Um so um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of uh, all of those meetings. Uh, I bet there were some interesting things discussed that we may see come to fruition over the course of the next year and so on. So, um, yeah, there's some, some very good, interesting things happening. Some slightly unfortunate things happening with some of the drama and the, the bickering. And, uh, you know, th those types of things, unfortunately, don't really lead us to much uh, in the way of um, progressing forward. Um, but, you know, it's a part of life, isn't it, at the end of the day? Not everybody's going to get on. And, you know, in some cases, the kind of rivalry between, you know, Joe Mergier and John Greenwald is, is, is kind of a good thing. It's just a shame that it took a turn for the worse, really, and, and got to the stage where they couldn't reconcile the differences. Because, as I said, it was interesting to see that back and forth taking place. But, you know, people get, especially with a topic like this, which has pretty profound consequences, you know, it's... Um, People get people get quite uh, passionate, uh, and sometimes that boils over into, uh, you know, slightly unfortunate side of things. But anyway, thanks for listening to the podcast uh, all the way through to the end. Because if you have listened to this point, you are clearly a hardcore listener of this podcast. And um, we're going to leave it there for today, and uh, catch you guys in the next one. Until then, take it easy, stay curious, 
I'll see you next time. UFO Thinker Podcast.